Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is Peter Capamola. You will learn that he is a late discovery adoptee. After you hear this episode, I suggest you listen to episodes 7, 14, 22, 24, and or 32 if you are an LDA and want to be reminded that you are not alone. Peter hails from Australia, about an hour outside of Sydney, and the 15-hour time difference was tricky to navigate at first for us to have a conversation. He did the heavy lifting for us to arrange the recording, so I'm deeply appreciative for all of his planning and assistance. I first came to know Peter during an NAAP virtual event when I took notice of his effortless participation by asking good questions and sharing his personal story. Not to mention, I love his accent and hearing him speak. When I reached out to him and invited him to be on the podcast, he responded back that day. Once we figured out Zoom worked best, we were ready to record before the end of the month. His adoption journey is full of peaks and valleys, or also referred to as a roller coaster, to say the least. As a genealogist, he hadn't a clue that he didn't biologically belong to the lineage tree he had built for his family. He will share how things quickly unfolded about whose tree he really was a part of. Allow me to introduce you to a man who jumped right in and took the helm on behalf of helping other adoptees of making some sense of being an adopted person. Take special notice to Peter sharing the information of the national apology issued to victims of illegal forced adoptions by the Prime Minister of Australia at the time, Julia Gillard, of which is a major part of his discoveries. Peter, I'm so glad you said yes to a conversation with me for the podcast. Uh, welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. Uh, thank you very much for asking. Um, it's really my pleasure to be here. Far away, all, all questions are open. I'm, everything's on the table. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I'm really excited because I know it's 11 a.m. or so where you are in Australia, and it's 8 p.m. behind you where I am in the U.S. So, like, this is um, a first for me. And so for us to be able to have this this time together means so much. And so I guess we should start, let's just jump right in with you sharing a little bit about your story from wherever you want to start and however much you want to share. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I obviously grew up in a family. I, um, I grew up in the, in the this is western suburbs of, uh, of Sydney, in Australia, um, in, the, in the 19, yeah, late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, 70s in that area, and uh, yeah, I, I, my uh, 
adopted mother's side. There was a, uh, came from a family of eight. So I spent a lot of time with that family on the uh, adopter's father's side. He came from a completely different background. My adopted mother came from a country background where she grew up in the country, you know, in the bush, as we call it here. And, and my adopted father, he actually grew up as a, in, in foster care or kinship care of um, a very wealthy uncle and aunt. So he had a, yeah, a traumatic life, although a privileged one as far as, um, yeah, money was never a problem you know, going through the depression. They were the, the, um, the well-off. Yeah, so they came from different, different lifestyles. Um, in myself, I, I, um, I had a speech impediment when I was young. I had to get intensive you know, speech therapy. Often found myself lonely. I lived in a street where it was a main road. It wasn't too many, well, there wasn't too many other boys in my street. Uh, yeah, we, we basically found you know, things to yeah, occupy our imagination. Life was okay. I, I felt lonely, but I just thought that was normal. And uh, Sydney, for anyone that doesn't know it, is uh, quite large in area-wise. It, it will take you an hour to two hours to go from one side to the other side. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So I think it's got about six million people now. It probably had about two or three million back then. Yeah, hot in the suburbs, very hot in summer. Uh, you didn't get the sea breezes. <laughs> uh, yeah. You remember the the tar on the road melting and yeah, getting the thongs caught in the tar because yeah, it was sticky. You know, that sort of heat. Yeah, so I, I grew up there. I went on to become a motor mechanic, a coal miner, an exploration driller. Yeah, injured my back there. Went into um, in, into book sales. Sold educational books to to schools and libraries and juvenile justice centres and jails and yeah I did that for a while and uh, then ended up in the security business selling alarms and then eventually I guess because of my mechanical background um, went into uh, programming and, and that of alarms and, and went out on my own install, installing alarms and stuff. Yeah I've, I've had a number of different careers in, in life and uh, I've been been in the security industry the longest, I think. I've been in that just over 10 years, which is probably yeah, about the longest. I've always got a mechanical background, even in IT. You know, logical thinking uh, plays a large part of that. Yeah, so I've said on that, I in, tw- in 2000, I had to change a career and I changed a location. And my wife's mother was also fostered and was looking and uh, and my wife asked me if I'd I'd help her find it. And that's how I got into genealogy. Within a week, I found a family and, uh, yeah, got the bug, started to do my genealogy, ended up with a a tree of 13,500 people. Wow. Um, I travelled all over over the eastern states to... to, um, you know, family tree reunions accompanied by my adoptive parents, who, of course, I didn't know were my adoptive parents, and um, culminated in uh, having a headstone remanufactured for 
convict ancestor, an Irish convict ancestor, and I, you know, with the help of others, we refurbished the grave site and put that headstone on there and organised a reunion on the on Australia Day, which is the 26th of January 2008, and had people coming from all over the, the country to visit, to attend that. Wasn't my ancestor. <laughs> Yeah, so let, let's let's stop right there for just a second because I know when you said, of course, I didn't know they were my adoptive parents. So right there, people listening are like, what? Because we haven't said that you're a late discovery adoptee yet. So all through your childhood, you think these are your biological parents, right? Yes. Yeah, right. you had no um, reason to believe otherwise except for a memory that came back about three or four months after my discovery. Okay. So I had a memory come back prompted by my wife talking to her sister about blood types. And it prompted this memory of me being in high school around about the age of 12 or 13. And we were learning about how to predict our blood types. So we were asked to bring our parents' blood types in and they would, we would go through this exercise. Well, I already knew what my blood type was. So when we did the exercise, it didn't add up. So I remember now not telling anyone else in the class and waiting for the whole class to leave. And I stayed behind and I went and saw the science teacher and I showed him my results. To which he responded, well, it's not your father, then you're adopted. It's as blunt as that. Mm. So I went away a bit bewildered. And later on, another memory came back. And I remember having an argument with the adopted father. Yeah, I'm not sure how long after, you know, maybe weeks or. And I blurted out, You're not my father, I'm adopted. Mm. Then immediately felt guilty and never said it again. And then later on, another memory came back of me asking for and waiting for the birth certificate. And then when I got the birth certificate, it had their names on it. So I'm thinking, well, the teacher must be wrong. There's something wrong with the way he worked it out because these are obviously my parents. Right. And I buried that memory for 40 years mm. or more. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but somewhere around that. So I just buried it. Well, I buried it in my subconscious, but obviously it kept coming to the surface. Right. And uh, yeah, and I. Uh, that I is so a, interesting. Yeah, almost like maybe your body was protecting you by repressing yeah, I, it. Yeah. Uh, although I kept, I became very angry and confrontationist with the. Uh, especially the adopted father, and I didn't know why. And I was diagnosed with depression in about 20, 20, uh, 20 about two thousand. Sorry, when I um, when I I ended one career and 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 moved to a, a new area, and I didn't think I was. <laughs> the doctor gave me a, a video cassette to to watch, and I went can't went back to him and said, "Oh, yeah, some of the things, yeah." But he said, "No, I think." Uh, and eventually I ended up to a counsellor and we were trying to work out what event would have caused this. 
And of course, we never we never found out. But it did aim at early teens, which now I look back and go, well, that coincides with that finding that out. It, everything makes sense now. Mm-hmm. So, so finding out has made is is made a lot of sense. I've been able to piece a lot of things together that, um, yeah. So, yeah, I know I kind of disrupted the flow of your story. So you become involved in genealogy is something that you just enjoy doing. And so you do a lot of work. How long are you doing that work? Well, I I started about 2000. Okay. And, yeah, so it's been ongoing since then. But I was always a family-orientated one amongst all the cousins and things and when there was a family event on i was the one that turned up mm-hmm. and everyone else didn't <laughs> which is strange the one that doesn't belong is the one that turns up right and, yeah. <laughs> and i was i was always really interested in the in the family histories even before i did genealogy of you know because the um adopted mother's father he was an old what we call an old bushy you know he was a he was a his trade was been it was a blacksmith, so he had all these stories about the bush from bush rangers, which are you know outlaws. You would call them in America. Well, Australia had their own outlaws, and you know, there was a lot of folk all around that. And uh, so I was always interested in that sort of stuff. So yeah, so that drew me to genealogy. I guess after I had that first success, and it was just it was just a um, obvious place to for me to to uh, delve into. So then yeah, you, right. at some point, you you take a DNA test. Yeah. my um, I, I thought it was just an extension of what I was doing, but I was also wondering about my own children or grandchildren. My two oldest grandchildren have olive skin. And you know, we didn't know too much about, we know their father, but he doesn't know too much about, or didn't at that time know too much about his uh, ancestry. So I was really looking at the authenticity, you know, thinking this might be South Seas Island or something. So the, the tests were on, on sale one night and we're watching on TV and my wife said, just grab three of them, one for me, one for you and one for our oldest granddaughter. So we did that. It was quite innocuous. We, you know, we didn't, um, we weren't expecting anything spectacular to come about. We right. Just this is, what year is this now? Is uh, that's 2016. Okay. And we got our results back in September 2016. And I didn't understand DNA at all. When you get your DNA, DNA um, results, as you, you're probably aware, you have a pie chart. Back in 2016, above that pie chart used to be the words from thousands of years ago. So when I saw the pie chart and it showed... 44% Italian, I just assumed that was from thousands of years ago and put it down to the Gaelics invading Rome, which I'd read a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. so I didn't know anything. I'm embarrassed now how little I knew. And anyway, you also get your shared matches, um, basically from your closest relative to your most distant based on centimorgans. Right. But I had no idea what Centimorgans were. Or we nev- never do, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I, I see my granddaughter there, close match. But there's a, another close match, 
in fact, now I realise even closer. And this woman messages and messages me and says, I grew up in an Italian family. I don't look like my brother and sister. Ever since my father's death in 1982, at the age, my age of 11, my brother and sister teased me that I was adopted. So this woman believes that she may be adopted, has thought so for 40 years, sees my match and thinks, must be true. You know, how else would I match into someone else's tree? They're right. not Italian. Right. <laughs> so I'm empathetic. I want to help this woman. <laughs> so we we communicate, we talk about our families. And, you know, so I tell her about my family. She tells me about hers. And eventually she, you know, I, I, I decide, well, she must be on my family somewhere. I need to find out whether it's on my mother's side or my father's side. So I... I give them DNA kits for Christmas 2016 and just to work out which side of the family she belongs, not telling them what I was doing it for, not telling her that this is what I was doing. Anyway, they, they don't do it for a while. <laughs> they, they don't do it until about February 2017 they do the do the test. So this is your adoptive mother and father. Parents. Right. Yes. Wow. And, and early March 2017... I know it's probably a little bit early for the results to be in, but you know, usually you know, six to eight weeks. This is around the fifth week. And I think I'll, I'll just look in the, 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 at the DNA and the tree and you never know, it might come in early. And, and then the pennies start to drop. I realise there's no surnames in my DNA matches. Now, this is six months later after I first looked at my DNA, the penny finally drops that there's no surname in my DNA. And I go, surely someone in my 13,500 people in my tree did their DNA. That doesn't sound right. So right. I checked my wife's DNA match, and um, sure enough, there's surnames there that I recognise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wheels are well and truly starting to turn now. And I, I always knew I was born at Salvation Army Bethesda Hospital at Marrickville in inner city suburb. And I Googled that many years before and all I received was an image of a, an old building. Now, in my desperation, I decided to Google it again. Unbeknownst to me, there was an apology, a national apology issued to victims of forced adoption in Australia by the then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, who apologised for, for illegal forced adoptions. So when I Googled... Salvation Army Bethesda Hospital, all this information come up about forced adoptions. This this hospital was basically built for that. And I realised there and then that uh, I was adopted. Mm. So I went into my wife who was reading in bed and said, sat on the end of the bed and said, I'm adopted. And she said, get out of here. No, you're not. <laughs> and I went, yeah, I am. Look at this. So... Um, yeah, there was no no doubt. It was, the evidence was obvious. How did you and, feel in that moment? Um, shell shocked. Yeah. And and I read more and more about it, and I'm trying to work out how my uh, adoptive parents would not know. Like, what what, what circumstances would, would they not know that I was adopted? Because I couldn't contemplate the fact that they'd lied to me. Right. And. And I realised through the forced adoption era 
one of the things they did, apart from the, you know, they drugged the, many of the, the, the girls and women and tied them to beds and, you know, hid their view of the, of the birth. And one of the things they did was a rap, thing called rapid adoptions. And they would tell the woman or girl that the baby had died. And then they would rapidly adopt that to a couple who had experienced, you know, multiple miscarriages or a miscarriage. Mm. So I'm thinking, I knew that, you know, my, my mother and my adopted mother had had experienced miscarriages. And I thought, this fits. Maybe she doesn't even know, you know, she's, you know, all upset that she's had a miscarriage and then they come back and somehow, <laughs> oh, no, here it is here, you're fine. And I don't, I don't know, these are the things that go through your head, that, you know, like you're trying to explain things away. Mm-hmm. I had to find out for sure and also realised at this time that that woman who contacted me didn't belong in my tree, that I belonged in hers and that she was, in fact, my sister. Mm. Uh, I wrote her an email and told her this and she thought, no, 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 my results are wrong and I've caused this poor guy to think he's adopted and it's all my fault. (laughs) I'm going to get another DNA test and I'm going to send it through England so I make sure it goes to a different lab. And, of course, the results come back. Yeah, almost identical. She's your sister uh, on your maternal side? No, my paternal side, paternal. my father's side. Okay. So she's still worrying after 40 years that something's wrong with her. <laughs> you know, when she eventually accepts that we are brother and sister and we share a father, she's still, you know, worried that, um, yeah, there's something, something she's not being told. So I promise her that I will find the, the truth. Mm-hmm. And I realised the only way I can do that is find my mother. So very quickly I learned a little bit about DNA and the best way I knew to do it was to split my Italian names from my non-Italian names. Yeah, I would obviously do it different today, but that's basically what I did. And I found some very distant cousins were the only ones I found that had extensive trees. So I was looking for a shared ancestral surname and I decided on a surname and the surname was Trindle. So I copied one of their trees and I put myself in the tree as that ancestor and I built it down like an umbrella. Then you usually build a tree from yourself back. I built it from this ancestor forward. As I did that, I found more, more marriages which resulted in different surnames which were also in my DNA when I checked. So I was fairly confident that, that I had the right tree and if I found my mother's name, she would fit in that tree. At the same time, I sent away for an adoption certificate, which we were entitled to in Australia and various states brought it in at various times prior to the 2013 apology, a national apology. There's other apologies from state to state and they started to open up the, uh, the records. So I applied for that. And after a month, I hadn't heard anything and I basically rang him up and said, well, you know, what's going on? What have you done? I haven't heard anything. And this was through an NGO, a non-government organisation that's you know, got grant money to do this. They said, oh, no, it'll take another seven or eight months. I went, no, nah, I'm not waiting that long. And I bypassed them and went straight to the government department. And I found a very nice woman there who said, look, 
if you get a doctor's certificate and you know that says that this is uh, affecting your ability to function we may be able to speed it up a little so i did that and i wrote a four-page letter to, to accompany it they told me i would receive a a package of an information package which i did about yeah, five days after i submitted this to them and when i opened the package in the morning i went oh geez there's a lot to go through here i'll have a look at lunchtime when i'm at work at lunchtime i opened up again and went you know what there's a lot of information here i'll just quickly have my lunch i'll get back to work and when i finish the job i'll have a good look so i finished the job in the afternoon I opened up the package again, and amongst all this information was one single plastic sleeve. And I thought, what's that? So I pulled that out, and it was the adoption certificate. Had my adopted parents' names on it and my mother's name. Mm. And uh, the first person I rang was my adopted sister. I have a younger uh, sister, a biological child of the adoptive parents, who is a world-renowned professor of medicine. So her inquiry mind says, no, no, this ancestry is commercial DNA. I have friends who are professors of genetics. I'm sure they'll do a test between you and me. Will you do it? Yeah, of course I'll do it. So she had that. That was all happening in, yeah, in the background. And so, so I ring her up and said, hold everything. I have the adoptions to it. It has the names on it. Because she wasn't aware that we were that I was adopted, it was um, so. So she was as much in the dark as I was. She said, "There's one more thing we need to do." I said, "What's that?" She said, "We need to tell mum and dad." She said, "Do you want to do it, or do you want me to do it?" And I quickly said, "You can do it." <laughs> so <laughs> Which, up until this time, I, you hadn't talked, you hadn't confronted them. No, I hadn't confronted them. I wanted to cross my teeth, stop my eyes, right make sure that I was, I was correct. I, you know, I, I thought I was being, you know, I think back now, it's, you, you know, you're a detective. <laughs> Don't discount anything until you, <laughs> until you're sure. <laughs> so true. Sure. Yeah, so true. Yeah. And um, yeah, so as it happened, this was a Friday afternoon. The following Sunday was Mother's Day. And my sister went and told them on the Saturday that I knew and her and her husband had arranged to take them out for lunch on Mother's Day. So we arranged that I would get there just before they did. And, yeah, so I um, the first words I got when I got through the door was, you saved our marriage. And the second words were, we burnt the papers when you're a teen. Looking back, that was obviously in reference to when I had my um, mini discovery of the uh, of the blood types, and uh, they decided to burn it. And by this time, my sister and her husband are, had arrived, and I told them everything. I've just told you how I how I, uh, I I I discovered it, and I told them I was going to meet my my mother in a few weeks' time. I was going to fly interstate uh the adoptive mother wanted to come right or wrong and i was sort of walking on eggshells not wanting to upset them but i didn't want her to come and my 
the doctor's sister stepped in and went, no, no, this is Peter's journey. He needs to do it on his own, which I was relieved for her to do. And my adoptive mother said to me, but you said she had a stroke. What if she has another one and dies and I never get to meet her? And I'm thinking, I never got to meet my father and you were going to take this information to your grave. What about me? I was never going to, was never going to meet my father. And now you're complaining that you may not get to meet her. And I think that that answered any questions that I might have had. I, yeah. After finding out, I, heard, I found out, realised that they were going to take this to their grave. I thought, yeah, how many questions would have been left, yeah, unanswered questions? And here I was, I had no questions. It wasn't about me. It was never going to be about me. Yeah, I would never get an apology. I, I don't think I'd ever get empathy. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty clear, you know. Uh, this was about saving their marriage, replacing a child, carrying on the surname, but it wasn't about me. So even after all these years later, it was never any explanation? I, I heard you say no. there was no apology. There was nothing like we we wanted to tell you, but we just didn't know the right time. None of that? No, none of that. Mm. It's just a, it's a silent subject. And their health deteriorated in the last four years uh, to the point where the adopted father died in April this year. And, yeah, the, the, the time has passed. If I had found out 10 years earlier, I might have yeah, had the argument, okay. yeah, been able to go through it. But, right, yeah, it right. just, it, it's just too late for that to happen. So. Yeah. So now you know... You're equipped with this. And, and you know, I did hear you say to your adoptive mom, I'm going to go find my mother. Did you say it just like that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I have um, five siblings on my maternal side and three siblings on my paternal side. So when I, when I, I just... Step back to the Friday night. I, after I got that, that information that I now had, and the surname Trindle, and within minutes I found a brother on a Trindle tree blog who named my mother and his, our grandmother. Mm. Took their names back to my tree that I built, and I'm sorry, and my great grandfather's name, and his his name was Bob Trindle. And I looked for a Robert Trindle in my tree and I found one. Didn't know whether it was a right one or not, but I added the names of my grandmother and mother under that name, which, as you know, in ancestry then give you, gives you hints of other people who also have those names in their tree. And I found that my brother also had an ancestry tree. And I went into that tree and saw that I had two brothers under a first marriage a brother and two sisters under a second marriage. When I looked closely, I realised that there was a fatherless child in between the marriages. Mm. So at that point, I realised that my brother knew about me. So I sent him a message which said, yeah, Peter Moore, interested to know more about the fatherless child in the tree and my phone number. 
So I sent that on, you know, 7.30 or I guess at uh, Friday night and at 5 a.m. I saw that he saw that message. Just after five that afternoon, the phone rang. I didn't know the number. I thought this could be him. My daughter was standing next to me and it was. And uh, he asked my name and I went, Graham. I went, you're, yeah, so-and-so's your son of, you know. And he went, yes, and so are you. Yeah, it was an instant. He knew who I was. Uh, my mother knew what my adoptive name was going to be. A worker in the hospital told her and she said, when I did speak to my mother, she said, I never understood why she did that because I knew she wasn't supposed to. So my brother knew what my name was. Mm. He'd only known about me for three weeks. My mother had had a mini stroke before Christmas in 2016, had worried ever since that she may have a, a bigger stroke and would lose her ability to communicate and find me or tell anyone else about me. So this was May 2017, so three weeks earlier, she had confided in her oldest son and a husband of 55 years that I existed. Mm. All the stars lined up together. And uh, after speaking to my brother for a, just over an hour, he gave me her number and I rang my mother. And her first words were, I was forced. I never wanted to give you up. Mm. So and over the next uh, 24 hours, I was talking to my two sisters and yeah, my um, one of my sisters tells me because whilst I was talking to my mother, my brother was calling his siblings because when my mother confided in him and he promised to find me, she said, "Don't tell your siblings until you do." Mm. So at that point, he was ringing them, and one of my sisters was telling me that she wasn't home when he rang, and he explained to her husband, "This is important. This family is left field. You." Uh, yeah, she needs to contact me urgently tonight. Yeah, and so when she got home, she's on the phone to him. She said her husband and her son were um, cheering her up, saying, you've got another sibling. And she said, I hung up the phone and turned to him and went, I've got another sibling. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it was a shock for them as well. But, yeah. You know, three weeks later, we I jumped on the plane with my wife, my oldest daughter and my, my oldest granddaughter, the one that I did the DNA test for, we reunited. Wow. That is yeah. just... Mm. And, you know, I'm thinking 2016 doesn't feel that long ago to me. How does it feel to you? Do you does it still feel somewhat it's, fresh, new? No, it seems like... Seems like decades ago. It's this four years has been a well, it obviously was a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Everyone, every LDA goes on a roller coaster because, on one hand, you have this sadness and depression of what you've lost. On the other hand, you've got this new experience of you know, this whole new family you don't know about, and you go, "Wow, wow!" and and then then you have the crash. And you crash back to the depression again. And then, you, and then, you, 
then something else comes up, you go, wow, and you're a big high again, and then you crash. You know, it's a right, this right emotions, you know. You know, it's standing in front of the mirror every day going, Italian? Really? Italian? Like, <laughs> you don't recognize the person in the mirror. If you look there, and I've heard this said many times by other adoptees, had the same experience. And yeah, then then I I was invited to a a luncheon for on the anniversary of the apology for forced adoption at at Parliament House in New South Wales. The luncheon was being held in New South Wales Parliament House. When I was I before I went there, probably a month before, on my way home from work. I had this sudden urge to write a poem. You know, I've n- never been able to t- put two sentences, rhyming sentences together. I couldn't do it at school. Now I've decided I've got to get all this stuff out and I've got to do it in a poem. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> I got home and I wrote an eight-page rhyming poem from start to finish. Didn't stop, did it all in one session. Anyway, I carried this poem with me and... There was a speaker on stage and uh, she, she's a doctor and, and a lawyer. When she got off the stage, I waited patiently while all these other women, because you know, there was a lot of mothers, birth mothers, if people want to use that term, you know, but mothers who wanted to talk to us. So I waited patiently. I gave her my poem and she put it in, she thanked me for waiting patiently and then put it in her purse. I mean, oh, she didn't even read it. Anyway, about three days later, I get a message from her. She went, I think she rang me up. She went, wow, wow, I just read your poem and I want you to join this Facebook group that I that I have. And I joined the Facebook group and within a few days, another member of that Facebook group says, I want you to join this other group. We've got a committee and I want you to be on it. Unbeknown to me, this was the start of Adoptee Rights Australia and I've been invited in and... I end up being the public officer, so it was incorporated in my name. <laughs> After the first year, I was then elected from public officer to the president of Adoptee Rights Australia. <laughs> so this has been a whirlwind. <laughs> you didn't see all <laughs> no, that coming. <laughs> I never asked for the, for the position that was just, I fell into it and, William, who contacted me, he was an amazing, amazing man who had his adoption discharged. It's not long after, probably about six months after I was involved in William told us all that he had cancer and it was and it was terminal. In Australia, there was a in most states there is a clause which allowed adoptees, adopters, adopters. I keep thinking of doctors, <laughs> like dinosaurs, uh, <laughs> but um, adopters who um, who wanted to get out of the adoption for whatever reason, it gave them an out. And adoptees have taken advantage of that loophole and there's been a number of discharges in Australia. It continues to be. And it basically allows you to revert back to your original birth certificate and been no longer adopted. And William fought for that and was granted it one month before he died. 
in 2019. Mm. Uh, he was the larger-than-life figure for all of us. Mm-hmm. But, um, he left us a great legacy. Yes. Uh, yeah, so we, we pursue that and you know, I'm tied up in submissions to to government inquiries and uh, you know legislation and I end up in the media a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here's, here's this kid who, who had problems with speech, started when he got nervous, had complete stage fright, couldn't stand up in front of crowds, finding myself on national TV and on podcasts. <laughs> 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 Isn't that the truth? Look at you. <laughs> you know, when I see you engage with the community on, with like NAAP, the happy hour, I've seen you. Each time I've been on, I've seen you on there, and, and your questions are just such uh, good questions. And you just don't miss an opportunity to engage with everybody and the presenter and. I said, wow, Peter is so connected. And, and and so to learn that you were an LDA and to learn that really you've just been a part of the community for, what will we say, about five years, right, would you say? Yeah, four and a, four and a half. Yeah, but it on. feels like you've been involved for a lot longer than that. You know, you just get right in there and, and just... Yeah, the- there was no, there was no going to be silence in me once I found out. Right. Uh, I, first thing I did was I wrote an open letter to my Facebook page and told everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't going to let Chinese whispers or anything. This, this was, this was it. And uh, yeah. so, what yeah. would you, uh, what, what kind of guidance would you give to someone brand new, like someone just got the results back from their DNA kit, and they're just I, I just can't even imagine what that feels like. But I, I, I'm thinking, okay, so now they start getting involved. What would you say to them? They're brand new to the community. I'm look, I've I found a lot of um I don't know if you call it healing, but a lot of uh, understanding. And that's what you need. You need understanding, you need to communicate with with other adoptees of you know with you know ex- they had the same shared experiences and Facebook groups have been great for that but as we know not all Facebook groups are friendly places so I tend to direct any adoptees who come because some see me on the media and then they seek me out through um, adoptee rights and my advice is I'll tell them some Facebook groups that are safe okay that I'm I'm and glad said, you well, shared that because that is so yeah. true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some put themselves up as support groups and, in fact, they're a pro-adoptionist trying to to gaslight you. And I, I ended up in one of those groups and I, I found it was good training for me <laughs> and I took it that way. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it helped me to vault my own. It helped me to galvanise where I was thinking and how if someone's come straight out of LDA and you're being gaslighting, you go, no, that's not the way I feel. I feel like this. You know, I realised, even if I didn't know what the term gaslight meant, I realised what they were doing and uh, and I, I never wavered. And uh, the funny thing is I was, I was on one night and there was four 
attacking me at once. Mm. And my two-finger typing was having a battle <laughs> to keep up. <laughs> and and William was actually watching, the, and he didn't involve himself. He was just watching it. And he said to me, there was, you know, 264 exchanges. Yeah, is hey. It went on for, I don't know, a couple of hours. It was it was bizarre. Anyway, in the end, they all left bar one. And the one that stayed said, I give up. She said, You're just like William Hammersley. <laughs> you should hook up, you should hook up with him. You just never give in. <laughs> and, and, they didn't know that I already knew William. <laughs> we were in together. Uh, good, good. No, I, thought, I, I took that as a huge compliment. Yeah, I was going to say good for you. That's great. <laughs> uh, but I know that's, you know, I'm not everyone. Uh, I know, you know, we deal with traumatized adoptees and I get phone calls and, you know, people who break down talking to me, you know, because they've gone through a, a hard day or, whatever and everything's just you know hit them at once and um so we know how fragile people can be and even the most educated and best you know performing adults you know who, who hold you know positions of you know of importance or whatever they're still fragile yeah underneath you know yeah. it's we put on a brave face and we you know we can be high achievers but still be fragile yes yeah yeah, because I'm I'm often thinking about the person brand new, and not necessarily LDA, but just any adoptee that's new to the community and having to learn the language and, like you say, decipher through some of the communities within the community that may not be as respectful as yep. yeah other members, and and trying to navigate this and then. If you have that extra layer, I call it like an extra layer of trauma, um, not knowing until you're an adult that you were adopted. Yeah, that just feels like you, you're just at a loss, you know, just at a complete loss in the very beginning. But uh, I don't believe in isolation, and I, I think that the key is to be connected to the community. Um, and you may have to find the group or find the materials that work for you that resonate you know with you but yeah I appreciate you sharing that because I don't think anybody else has really talked about that yet with me for the podcast certainly I've had conversations about some of the toxicity that goes on uh, and it's basically been on Facebook primarily that it's been mentioned but I think it's important for people when they come to the community brand new and I'm, and now I'm specifically thinking of LDAs. Yeah, don't give up. You know, find, just keep looking, keep looking and finding and staying connected to what does work for you. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, yeah, and I, I've had recent ones coming in, and I, I always give them my phone number. I say, well, look, we're not a support group. We're we're, we're advocates, but we're still empathetic. And look, my here's my number. I'm happy to take your call. I'm busy, but you know, if I could help someone, and I've I've had many calls, but then you get the other ones who are new and they've never talked to anyone else before, and they don't do it. They don't follow through, and they go back and and you think, yeah, you know, if they just understood and talked 
they realize how beneficial it is to talk to someone who's going through the same thing as them. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's validation. And we don't get validation out there with, with um, you know, politicians and, and uh, you know, yeah, the, the infertility in, in, industry. Yeah, I don't call it the fertility industry. I call it the infertility industry. <laughs> but, yeah, you're definitely not going to get validation there. So, yeah, you get validation within in those groups of talking to other adoptees who can, you know, share your experiences and empathise with, with where you're at. Right, exactly. So I'm going to ask you two more questions. The first one is, what do you think is the most valuable thing that you have learned in reunion? Don't expect too much. Take what you've got. Keep a, a contact going, even if it's low level, even if it's just sending a message for for birthdays, mm. and just build relationship slowly. Yeah, they don't want someone just jumping into their lives. Yeah, even after reunion, things settle down. You know you. Yeah, you might have a great reunion day, but you're not going, you've lost so much and they've lost so much. You can't sort of pick up those pieces. And look, I have some, you know, I, I talk to my mother every week. I talk, you know, I, I have close relationships with, you know, a couple of brothers. One brother died, unfortunately, in November. I lost him after three and a half years. Mm. That was the first I contacted. But I, you know, I keep contact with with my brothers and my sisters a little bit. But you know, but the different varying degrees. You know, it's it's not all perfect. But yeah, I let them know I'm there. On my Italian side, it's the same thing. I have some great relations with cousins, uh, and more so than my siblings in some cases, and and that's good too. You, you know, families are more than just mum and dad, just siblings, it's cousins, aunts and uncles, um, you know, and and I, I get it, you know, I get phone calls you know, weekly or every other week from from cousins and sometimes we communicate with Facebook. But, yeah, I, I, you, you just got to prepare as much as you can for, for disappointment, rejection. But, you know, to, um, if you look at it, like forming a relationship with anyone, you know, friend. It's got to be, it's got to be a mutual. Both sides have got to want it. If one side doesn't want it, you're not going to be able to force it. Yeah, if it works, it works. You know, but yeah, it's, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and I often think there are these opportunities for us to build trust in any kind of relationship. And when when I see an opportunity to build trust, which means yeah, I do want to be in relationship. That's me extending an invitation. And I I think, okay, this is building it. But like you say, they also have the opportunity to do the same. Those times where you can build trust and sometimes people take it and sometimes they don't, you know, but it's it's works two ways. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great. And, and so my last question, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to leave with the um, community, particularly late discovery adoptees? Oh, tell me answers to that question. Um, what did you leave out? What, what, did I get to, what did I get to talk about? We ran out of 
the time is for the indigenous members out there who have indigenous culture i you know i and i have indigenous culture on my mother's side um and that's another level of understanding you know and i always look at cultures we have italian culture and i have and have an aboriginal culture all cultures are are valuable and in this country you know it seems that if you're not aboriginal culture then your culture doesn't matter and that's not true all cultures matter you know, my, you know my aboriginal culture matters a lot to me and i'm still exploring that but i also exploring my italian culture yeah and there's another story there going back to italy and visiting my father's grave and all that sort of stuff but it's all about understanding and accepting these, these cultures i think culture is very important and, and there's, there's sometimes not enough um, emphasis put on that. I um, agree. That's good. Yes. Culture is important, all cultures. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, I've forgotten if there's any more of the question that I missed. I'm sure there was. Um, yeah, was, well, you know, I, yeah. I just sometimes think that there's something I didn't ask that was on your mind, and I just mm. want you to have the opportunity to share it. So, but this has been great. I really appreciate you saying yes to a conversation, Pete. It really means a lot. And, and I learned so much in this, this um, technology to be able to do this with you because of the time difference. And like, I, that's just so fascinating to me. So I, I just thank you for that. No, no, thank, thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. It really has. I've, I've enjoyed it. Let's be super duper clear that all cultures are important. I agree 1000% Peter. As adoptees, that part of our identity is often stripped never to be fully realized because of time and distance apart from our original family. And those of us who are able to piece things together as in Peter's case, do so through research. I found it interesting that Peter, upon looking back over his life, he had repressed memories. I have heard other LDAs say that they continually went back over their lives to try and identify the clues or signs of information peeking through about them being an adoptee. I was particularly pleased about Peter mentioning that someone new to the adoption community needs to be aware of the existence of unfriendly spaces. I suppose it would seem a given to know that all groups have toxic hotspots. But it's important to repeat the fact that all groups aren't creating a safe space. The last thing I would ever want is for an adoptee to give up on the community entirely based on a bad or unpleasant experience. Peter will guide you to the healthiest adoptee groups online. I was so impressed that Peter wrote an eight-page rhyming poem that I look forward to reading about adoption that was the catalyst for him to be invited to join a Facebook group and then another, Adoptee Rights Australia. As he put it, it has been a whirlwind that he fell into as a public officer and now the president. I didn't mention this to Peter but I immediately wanted to lovingly dedicate this episode to William, who made his transition in 2019. I could feel his deep appreciation for the efforts of his larger-than-life and amazing friend. 
Thank you, Peter, for having a conversation with me during the evening, 8 p.m. my time, and your morning time of 11 a.m. It was truly a great experience. I'll always look forward to seeing and hearing you on Zoom. Wouldn't it be something special if I got the chance to go to Australia? It is on my list. There is no doubt that I would do everything in my power to meet you and your family in person. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag Adoptee Land. Thank you for being here.